Good evening. Am I on? Okay. All right. I have a lot of different things. I also have the Trinity Hymnal up here. I have a lot of moving parts. I want to make sure I have everything. Please turn with me to the book of First Peter. First Peter. First Peter, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. We will also be taking a look at the Westminster Larger Catechism after I read this passage, which is in the back of your Trinity hymnal. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please also turn with me in your Trinity hymnal to the back of your Trinity hymnal. The Westminster Larger Catechism is printed there, and we are going to be looking at question three and question four this evening. That is on page 940 of the Trinity hymnal. Question three asks, what is the word of God? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. Question four, how does it appear that the Scriptures are the word of God? The Scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. This evening, we are going to look at the Westminster Larger Catechism questions we just talked about. It's a little bit broader in scope than a typical sermon, but I think it could be, it is useful. I will be drawing especially from a book by R.C. Sproul called Truths We Confess. I didn't bring the book with me tonight, but it's called Truths We Confess by R.C. Sproul. I think it was published in the last 10 years. And it is a great exposition of the confession of faith. I've drawn a fair amount from that, that work this evening. There are three aspects of the Word of God that I would like to draw our attention to tonight. Three aspects. And the first one is the authority of God's Word. The second is its transcendent quality. And thirdly, 
the inward illumination of the Spirit that comes through the Word. So first, the authority of the Word. Second, its transcendent quality. And third, the inner illumination of the Spirit that comes through the Word. First, the authority of God's Word. We call it the Word of God and not the Word of man because it comes from God. It's primary author is God. Its secondary author is the human writer that God used by the Spirit, who was inspired to write His Word. It does not get its authority from man or from the church. The authority comes from God Himself. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 4, which we didn't read, but that's okay, says that the Word of God is to be, it uses the word, received. The Word of God is to be received because it is the Word of God. That word received is very important because in the, during the days of the Reformation, you may know that one of the central questions of the Reformation was this, where does the Scripture get its authority from? The Church, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church said that Scripture got its authority from the church. In effect, it was saying that the authority of the church stood above the authority of Scripture. This became a very important question. That's why in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it doesn't say that the Word of God is acknowledged or declared to be the Word of God. It says it's received by us because the church doesn't have authority to say, to declare, as if it stood over the Scriptures, that this is God's Word, uh, but rather we stand under God's Word. We receive it. Authority, God's Word, also carries obligation, a moral obligation. That means that the Scripture is a spiritual it's a spiritual exercise to interpret Scripture. So if you go on your college campus, I, on my college campus, there was a religious studies department, I still remember, and the professors of the religious studies department would often say that Scripture is simply, it's, a, it's an intellectual question. How you read Scripture, it's just about what you think about it and your intellect, and so they would pick and choose what things they thought were maybe even authentic and what things they didn't think were authentic, and therefore they would accept some parts of Scripture and they would not accept other parts of Scripture. But the, if the Word of God is from God, and it is, then it means that the interpretation of God's Word is spiritual. It's a moral issue. It's not just an intellectual thing. And because it comes from God, everyone is obligated to accept its authority. Everyone is obligated to acknowledge that we should submit to it, okay? It carries a moral obligation. There are a few other examples, very notable examples, of where people have gone wrong. So during the Enlightenment, what was very common was that human reason and human thought was above God's Word. That's why you had people like Thomas Jefferson cutting out portions of the Bible that they didn't like because it didn't agree with their reason and rationality. And so 
that way of thinking bled into the universities, bled into the seminaries, and even into the church. That way of thinking to, about Scripture, that we stand over Scripture and we can subject it to our own human reason. I don't mean that we don't think. We, we do think when we come to Scripture, but we don't stand over it. Here's another very important fact about the authority of God's Word. It means that the church doesn't declare by their own authority which books are Scripture and not. Rather, they receive them. So they acknowledge, when, whenever the church acknowledges the 66 books of the Bible, they are not saying that they have some kind of authority to declare if suddenly they changed their mind that there was another book that, that was God's Word and there was not another, and then a few years later they might change their mind again. No, rather, the internal witness of Scripture is evident that God's Word carries its own authority. It's self-attesting, okay? Consider this analogy. When Jesus was walking the earth he didn't derive his authority from his followers. Wouldn't it be very silly for Jesus to have been with, say, John or James or Peter, and then Peter get up to declare, Jesus, we've been with you, we've been following you, we're the church, and we're going to invest our authority in you, Jesus. Now we're going to declare that you have authority. That would be silly. When, when you read the pages of Scripture... Jesus very clearly carries his own authority because he's God. He doesn't ask anyone's permission to perform miracles. He doesn't ask anyone's permission for authority to cast out the uh, money changers in the temple and things like that. Rather, he carries his own authority. And the same is true of the Word of God. It carries its own authority. It does not need the authority of some other thing. Finally, one more note on the authority of of God's Word. It is common today, especially on the college campus, to say that God's Word becomes, that the Bible becomes the Word of God, that it's not really the Word of God, but if, if if it's true for you, then it can become the Word of God for you. It's a, what we call a neo-Orthodox view of Scripture, that if if you feel, you know, if you feel like it's the Word of God, and some would say if you've been illumined by the Spirit, well, then it becomes the Word of God to you. But the problem with that is, is to say, what they're saying is that it's not the Word of God for everyone. They're saying you have the power to determine what is God's Word and what's not God's Word. But the truth is that the Bible is the revelation of God himself. It doesn't need your affirmation to be the revelation of God. It is the revelation of God, whether you agree that that it is or not. It carries its own authority. The second thing that I would like us to consider is the transcendent quality of Scripture. The transcendent quality. Here, the Westminster Larger Catechism says that they manifest, the Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity and consent of all the parts. Here's what John Calvin wrote concerning the Word of God. Much of the Westminster Confession of Faith, I think, was drawn from 
Calvin's writings, particularly on this subject. Here's what Calvin says in the Institutes. Scripture is self-authenticating. It is not right to subject it to proof and reasoning, and the certainty it deserves with us it attains by the testimony of the Spirit. For even if it wins reverence for itself by its own majesty, it seriously affects us only when it is sealed upon our hearts through the Spirit. Therefore, illumined by His power, we believe neither by our own nor by anyone else's judgment that Scripture is from God. But above human judgment, we affirm with utter certainty, just as if we were gazing upon the majesty of God Himself, that it has flowed to us from the very mouth of God by the ministry of men. We feel the undoubted power of God's divine majesty lives and breathes in Scripture. By this power, we are drawn and inflamed knowingly and wittingly to obey Him, yet also more vitally and more effectively than mere human knowing. Now, what Calvin is saying in my opinion, is what you would hear from someone who has been converted through reading Scripture. I remember talking to one of my professors about when he was converted, and he said that the the Word of God read him rather than he read the Word. When you you get this, um, I'm not going to say feeling, because it's more than a feeling, but there's a conviction when you read Scripture, if you've been convicted, that it's telling you who you are, because it's, it's, it's shining the light on your sin, and it's, it's showing you the holiness and grandeur of God, and you begin to feel small. You begin to feel the weight and burden of your sin. And so, in a real sense, the Word of God is living, and it is active. It is working, even, even when you don't consider that it is. Here are some of the texts that the Westminster Larger Catechism used when confirming what they were, were saying. They are, I, I believe the story is, and I might be wrong, but I believe the story is they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Larger Catechism, they submitted it, and the, um, the authorities came back and said, well, we want you to put proof texts into it. And so they, they put proof texts which just means scripture references. And here are some of the scripture references. Psalm 119, when it speaks about the majesty of God's word, Psalm 119 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, does my soul keep them? The purity, that the word of God is pure. Psalm 119, verse 140, Your word is very pure, therefore... Your servants love it. Also, which, also the consent of all the parts. This is the, the one particular area of Scripture that, that I find, in many ways, most compelling. This is what they wrote about the consent of all the parts, the, the proof text, Luke 24, 27. This is when Jesus had been raised from the dead, and he appeared to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he would say in Luke 24, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here in our passage, the same is true. I think it's 
in some ways, a companion text because it says that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be ours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what time or person the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, all of Scripture, the center of Scripture is Christ, and all of Scripture is testifying to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, everything from Genesis 3, from the fall until the end. It's about Christ. He's the center of the story. Of course, there's, there's evidence even of, through Genesis 1 of the triune God. But it's, it's one grand story to give one more proof text in Acts 26 when Paul is making one of his sermons, one of his appeals. He says this as he's preaching, Acts 26 verse 22, having therefore obtained the help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying nothing other than those which those things which the prophets and Moses did say should come. So according to the Apostle Paul, he was preaching the same substance that Moses was preaching and the prophets were preaching. He was preaching Christ, and Christ is the center of all of Scripture, including from the very beginning. Here is what Thomas Watson said concerning Scripture. The Scripture appears to be the Word of God by the matter contained in it. The mystery of Scripture is so profound that no man or angel could have known it, had it not been divinely revealed. That eternity should be born, that he who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle, that he who rules the stars should suck the breasts, that the Prince of Life should die, that the Lord of Glory should be put to shame, that the sins should be punished to the full yet pardoned to the full, who could ever have conceived of such a mystery had not the Scripture revealed it to us? So, for the doctrine of the resurrection, that the same body which is crumbled into a thousand pieces should rise, the same individual body, else it were a creation, not a resurrection. How could such a sacred riddle above all human disquisition be known had not the Scripture made a discovery of it? As the matter of Scripture is so full of goodness, justice, and sanctity that it could be breathed from none but God, so the holiness of it shows it to be of God. The point I'm trying to get at is Scripture has a transcendent quality. It's living and it's active. And when you open Scripture, not only are you reading about God, but in a very real sense, you're coming to learn the truth about who you are in light of who God is. There's a transcendence in Scripture that every other form of literature lacks. The Westminster Larger Catechism also points out that it has the power to convert and to comfort. That's another evidence, I think, that it is the Word of God. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There is no other word, there is no other book that would bring spiritual life to someone who is dead in their trespasses and sins. There's no other way to produce that. 
because it is not produced by the will of man, it's produced by God, speaking through Scripture. It has the power to change people's life. There are many different five-step programs. There are many different routines, whether it's a workout routine, whether it's a rehabilitation program. There are many different ways that people try to change the human heart. But the real source of change of the human heart has to come from a power that is greater than us. Of course, that power, where do we find that power? We only find that power in God himself speaking to us in Scripture. It's another evidence that Scripture is of God because it has the power to change the human heart. It has the power to change people's lives. It has the power to change your life and my life. To bring us comfort and to build up believers unto salvation. It doesn't end just with a conversion. It carries out throughout our life that as we read Scripture, that we, we have comfort. We have comfort from it. Again and again, it's, it's an odd thing that reading about the sufferings, sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow would be comforting in the present to us in our circumstance, but it's true. It's true. The third thing that we need to consider about Scripture, not only is it a, a transcendent quality, not only does it have authority, but Scripture is illumined to us by the Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to open our eyes. If Scripture is such a wonderful thing, then why aren't people bowing the knee to Christ without exception? Why, why is it that we go on the streets and we find people who care very little about God's Word? It's because the power of sin is also so great. It is not as great as the power of the Spirit, but the power of sin is so great that it has blinded the men, men's eyes. It has, in some ways, or you might say, it has enslaved people. They are unable to please God. They have the ability to choose Rocky Road ice cream or vanilla ice cream, but they don't have the ability to please God because their minds have been polluted and corrupted. They're blind. They're under the power of darkness. They need the Spirit to set them free through the Word of God. Romans 1 tells us that people have rejected God's Word. They've been given over to reprobate minds. The only thing that will change that is the inward illumination of the Spirit. By the way, there are traditions out there who would say that the inward illumination of the Spirit really comes after you repent and have faith. But Scripture's testimony is that we need the Spirit of God even before we repent and have faith. We can't repent and have faith without the Spirit's work in our heart. Here's what John Owen has said. John Owen says that the work of the Holy Spirit consists in the saving illumination of the mind. This is John Owen from The Reason of Faith. The effect of it is a supernatural light whereby the mind is renewed. See Romans 12, verse 2, Ephesians 1, 18 through 19. It is called a heart to understand, eyes to see, and ears to hear. Deuteronomy 28, 29, 4, the opening of the eyes of our understanding and the giving of an understanding 
Also in 1 John 5, verse 20. Hereby we are enabled to discern the, the evidences of the divine original and authority of Scripture that are in itself as well as assent unto the truth contained in it. And without it, we cannot do so, for the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. If the illumination of the Spirit is necessary for people to bow the knee to Christ and to acknowledge the authority of God's Word, then what should you and I be doing? We should be attempting to persuade people of God's Word, but we should also be praying because we know that the power does not belong to us. We know that the power belongs to God Himself. And so if there's someone that you love and that you care about who does not know the Lord, yes, you should be seeking in a a very real way to demonstrate to them through your life, and if, if, if the opportunity arises through God's word, perhaps even inviting them to church, all of that's necessary, but what's really necessary is that the Spirit illumines their mind. And so how do, how do you do that? We pray. We, we pray. We are not able to do it ourselves. We don't have the power in us to do it. We pray. Is the Spirit's illumination... Just a subjective feeling, because there are people out there who would say, well, I had this feeling that it's God's word, and so it is. But that's not, it's not true because I believe it to be true. It's true just because it's true. There are a couple of things that the Spirit of God does not do, and let me tell you clearly what they are. The Spirit of God doesn't grant you permission to disobey what has already been revealed in God's word. So if somebody robs a bank and says, the Lord told me to do it, or someone commits adultery and says, well, the Spirit of God in me told me to do so, then what they're doing is not in the Spirit, but they're violating God's commands the Spirit has already given to us. The Spirit does not also give people personal new content. Everything that the Spirit of Christ wants us to know, particularly about the sufferings and glories of Christ has been revealed to us in Scripture. Okay, so you can know truly that God is speaking to you through the Scriptures because they're fully sufficient for our needs. Particularly, the main work of the Spirit, the main work of the Spirit from our passage is to shine light on the person and the work of Christ. The entire scripture is shining light on Christ. And there are many, many people, the prophets, who desired and longed to know when Christ would come. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but us in the things that have been revealed in the preaching of the good news of the gospel. Finally, I would like to end with this. It is my prayer and hope that the sufficiency of Scripture would work in you a great work, that the inward illumination of the Spirit and your your reading of Scripture through the, the ordinary means of grace 
would transform you into the person God wants you to be. That's what I would want for you. In order for that to happen, you need to know the authority of God's word. You need to submit to God's word to confess its authority. You need to seek every day to dwell on the transcendent glories that you find in Scripture. And you need to pray. You need to pray that the Spirit, not only having illumined your heart and converted you, would continue to open your eyes to the things of Scripture that are clearly there. It is a continual process. I'm learning new things from Scripture every week, every day. It's a continual process. It never ends. It goes throughout our entire life. And it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing until finally one day we stand before the Lord, our faith is made, in, made sight, and we, we see the object of our, of our faith. Uh, the, the, the challenge today is to stand upon God's word and to believe that it is, it is in fact enough for you and I today, for whatever God throws our way, whatever challenges face us, whatever Whatever challenges come our way, it is fully sufficient to make us into the people that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fullness of your revelation. We thank you for the, the testimony, the clear testimony that it gives us, not only of our own sin but of the redemption that is offered to us in Christ. And we thank you that you did not leave us dead in our trespasses and sins, but that you sent us not only Christ, who suffered and died in our place, but you've sent a helper, as Jesus has said in the book of John, that he is a guide into the truth that he would guide us into all truth, that he's our helper, he's our comforter. We thank you that he brings us comfort through illuminating our minds in the knowledge of Christ. We thank you that your word carries your authority. We thank you that it's a transcendent book. It is not merely a human book. Father, we thank you. You are the divine author. We pray that as we seek to understand it, that we would bow the knee to who you are, that we would not be swerving away into error because of the blindness of our own sin, that the blindness that causes our minds to think erroneous thoughts about you. We pray that this battle, this spiritual warfare that goes on even over the interpretation of Scripture, we pray that you would spare us from the snares of, the Satan, of Satan, that in our reading of Scripture, we would come to the conclusions that you would have us to, to come to about who Jesus is and about what he has done for us. Please work in us a great work to your glory, that those who see our lives and hear our words would be drawn in to taste the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, too, that as we follow the pattern that has been laid out to, for us of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, I pray that we would be willing to follow Christ in that pattern, suffering first and then glory. Give us hope in the midst of the suffering. 
that one day, not only is glory working in us, inside us today, but one day we will stand before you, free from the presence of sin and dwelling with you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.